Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. And on this episode, F is for your eyes only, Roger Moore's fifth James Bond film. Joining me on this special episode to talk about John Glenn's 1981 007 debut is my protege who is innocent in the ways of the world, Mr. Brendan Duffy. Ah, Hello. And joining us because he heard doing podcasts helps build up muscle tone is a man with impeccable breath control. Is Mr. Tom Wheatley? Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and <laughs> back to form. And making his A to Z debut this week because he promised to buy us all a delicatessen in stainless steel is the man of a thousand voices, <laughs> Mr. Stu Rolls, who you may know from Twitter as Stu Only Lives Tweets. Welcome, Stu. Thank you. Well, yeah, thank you very much. Well, let's first of all, let's just quickly talk about For Your Eyes Only. Stu, you're, you're joining us for the first time. So you, let's, let's start with you. What, um, what does this film mean to you? This film to me is, it's almost like the vanilla wafer of an ice cream. It's kind of, it's bookended by absurdity and it, full of it is cream. And I love it. I love For Your Eyes Only. And there are a lot of emotional attachments to this film, but it's... It's basically, I would say, the the forgotten Roger. I've got that. That's probably my summation of this one. What, what about you? The other two. What about you two? Yeah, I would say it's the forgotten Bond for me. Really, really is my least watched for whatever reason that is. But upon returning to it, I um, I felt a sense of indifference to it. So that hasn't that hasn't budged. And what about you, Wheatley? Yeah, I'm pretty much the same. I remember. It was one of the ones, when I used to watch a lot of Bond films as a kid, I think I probably watched this least because there was nothing for, when you're a kid and you want the excitement and the cool set pieces and stuff, it's not really a lot of it in this one. And then as an adult, I've kind of not gone to it because there's just not much in it for me. I don't think it's a bad one. I just, I just, it seems to sit at the bottom of the sort of, it's like a TV Bond for me. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's um, from, I think I'm the similar. It's, it's one of my least watched ones because it doesn't have that, you know, Bond goes into space hook or it doesn't have that. It's got jaws in it or it's got this, it's got that. It's kind of doesn't have that strong hook to bring you in. And interesting, when I asked for the three word reviews um, on Twitter, one of them was gritty Roger Moore. And that in itself is a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Because we, when you come to a Roger Moore Bond film, 
gritty is not necessarily what you're hoping for. And I think that's possibly why it's a bit of an outlier in the canon and by design, uh, which we'll which we'll go into uh, as we dive into the making of the film. But do you want to hear some more of the three uh, three word reviews? Mm, yeah. Steve, yeah. Steve Clamp, he went with greatest Bond poster. I have to agree it is a fantastic poster. Stephen Carty, he had some good ones. He said best ever gun barrel, which I've got to say is a good one. Daddy-O, who, who's a fan of the show, he said stainless steel delicatessen, which is something we've mentioned before. And uh, yeah, we will um, we'll, uh, we'll discuss that shortly. Uh, Matt Hatch went with favourite Bond films. So it's Matt Hatch's favourite of the Bond films. The rock and roll guy went with Roger's coldest kill, which again is something we'll dive into later. And yeah, again, I have to agree. And probably my favourite is from Zorin Industries uh, on Twitter, Mustachio Pistachio Car Crashio. So... <laughs> Which I, That's good. I like that. which I thought was which I thought was quite funny, um, and then Griff I think sums it up serious yet silly. Which again I think that's better. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, I think that uh, pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Uh, okay, so that's uh, where we are. Um, Stuart's joining us for the very first time. Uh, he'll be um, have his own s- segments and everything. But uh, how, how have you find researching it, Stu? It's been really interesting. I think you know, and and. Thank you for obviously giving me those those different facets to look at. I think there's uh, there's a lot of stuff in this film that I know from personal experience, but also um, what's been apparent to me from looking at the the research is there's a hell of a lot of stuff in here that I didn't know about this film, and it is a bit of an enigma as much as maybe the villains are in this one as well. You know, everything's a bit of an enigma when it comes to Fury Eyes only. So that's why it's going to be wonderful just to explore this now. Right, let's kick things off then, uh, as we always do, with the plot. And this is nice and straightforward, which is is rare for a, a Roger Moore Bond. It's nice and stripped back, which is what they wanted. So British spy ship is sunk in the sea. And so they need to re- retrieve something called the ATAC, which is a communication system from the wreckage. Marine archaeologists Sir Timothy Havelock and his wife are killed uh, and their daughter Melina swears revenge upon them for them. So she kills the hitman, follows Bond and he he pursues the employer of the hitman uh, and he turns out to be Ari Christatis, who's the Greek businessman. And so with the help from Christatis's rival Columbo, played by Topol from Fiddler on the Roof, because it seems to be mentioned every time Topol is mentioned. So I just thought I'd keep that, keep that up there. Um, Bond discovers that Christatos sank the ship deliberately. Bond and Melina, they go and retrieve the attack from the wreck, um, but they're captured. They're able to, they follow Christatos to a mountaintop monastery. Um, there's, re- really, there's a really sort of nice mountain climbing scene. And that's, that's where... Christatos plans to hand the ATAC to General Gugol, but Colombo kills him and 007 then destroys the ATAC. He is he throw it off or kick it off? Just off the, chucks the it. Edge of the, yeah, just chucks throws it, it off. Yeah. He throws it off. Yeah, he throws it off the edge of the mountain and destroys it. So Gugol doesn't get it. So no one gets it. It's sort of a, a stalemate. And yeah, so it's a job well done for Bond. Nice simple mission, really. And then it ends with a bizarre scene. Where there's a phone call, a pa- a parrot is having a conversation with Margaret Thatcher. Um, it, yeah, um, and the odd thing I noticed is that Dennis Thatcher goes to to try and eat a raw Brussels sprout, which which is a weird thing to try and grab. But um, 
But yeah, job well done for Bond. Silly ending. Yeah, I think I think there's a nice premise um, to the plot there. I mean, if you if you look back at some of the the history that was happening around that kind of geography around Corfu and Albania back in 1946, there was one of the the precedents to the, the Cold War at that point, which is where a, a naval ship got blown off uh, the bows of the the ship got blown off by an Albanian mine. And it's it's interesting that I think with Michael G. Wilson on board, when he starts writing with Maybaum, he, he starts to bring that kind of research into Bond a little bit. So it's not just fantastical stories. He starts to, to lean into what might have happened either geographically or politically. And I think, you know, that's with the the premise of the St. George's and all that, That's that's quite an interesting little angle there. I tried to do a bit of research into what was happening in the cinema world over that over 1981, and it's a little bit muddy. I kept finding articles where they talk about it being the lowest box office year until COVID hit, but I did see some that kind of said that that wasn't quite the case. But around that time, there were some very bad years for box office takings, and as a result, I think a lot of the films that were sort of in the top grossing list weren't particularly what you class as big films. So 1981, uh, the biggest film of 1981 was, of course, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark by Miles. That's um, followed by a few other ones. Superman 2 came out as well that year, but then the other films that are around there aren't particularly that sort of big blockbuster. You've got things like Arthur, Cannonball Run, Chariots of Fire, Stripes. So not a really big year for those sort of massive blockbusters. So I have a feeling there must be some sort of budgetary things going on around that period, not just about Bond, but around films and studios in general. But that leads nicely on to the budget around it. Yeah, true. I mean, the budget, looking at what Moonraker did with $34 million and raking in, excuse the pun, $330 million, I mean, you, you kind of wonder why they went to a different angle with this one. I mean, you know, think likes of higher or lower on this one. If you're going to, you know, the usual trend is to make the film bigger and better and, and plow more money into it. With with Moonraker, they did 34 million. Uh, and with uh, Fioris only, they plow 28 million into it. I mean, it's still a vast amount of money when you think that Doctor No was 1 million, Live and Let Die was 7. But, I mean, is Fioris only... Is that a budget a budget sort of consideration on on the basis of what they were going to attempt to do? Bearing in mind that about around about that time, Thatcher had also introduced much uh, lower tax considerations of filming in, in in England, and maybe that was a maybe that was a draw, and they they pared it down. The other thing that you might want to think about is actually, you know, did they do it at twenty eight million for your eyes only because? Were they confident about what John Glenn was about to deliver? You know, that's another angle because the the series was about to take a massive redirection. Was the twenty eight million conservative, not just politically but cinematically? I think there's a thing as well where the the, the Bond series up until that point was on a quite a steady incline of costings of films, but also the budget associated with them. But when that happens, you get an associated cost of all the teams that work on it. So directors cost more, actors cost more, all this sort of stuff. And it starts mounting up and mounting up. So to make the next Bond film the same quality as Moonraker, you're probably looking at another 10 million to use the same directors and the same actors and everything. So they probably had to pull it back in order to sort of redress that balance. Otherwise, you're going to go exponentially 
more expensive over time. Yeah, and also I think if, if, if you're confident about your film and you want to make more money out of it, they often just throw more money at it rather than less money at it. So, um, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I wonder what was going on at the studio at the time. Maybe there was some politics there. And also I know that the, the, the Edie Levy stuff was sort of coming into effect, like they were starting to withdraw that, weren't they? So um, possibly there was uh, tax reasons behind oh, it. Oh, good. We're going back on yeah, to back uh, tax. financial tax considerations. <laughs> yes, yeah. Thank goodness. Or, or always clawing it back to tax. Uh, if you think about it, though, that if you to, to sort of lower the cost of the film with uh, they, they said at the time that they wanted to take it back a bit. So Moonraker was ridiculous fantasy. They You can't up that. You can't go right where we're going to go next. Saturn or whatever. So if you're going to say we're going to bring it further down to earth, you can't then say we want the same budget. You, you, you've got to take a cut in that as well because you don't need that much budget for all of the effects and everything. So it's probably as a, as a result of saying we're going to go more down to earth with this and bring it back to a more serious style. And the, the production company probably went, oh, fantastic. How much are you going to save them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it lends into that realism of, well, the realism that they, they wanted to, to go for in Fury Eyes only, I think. And also you've got that added dynamic that Moonraker was also split across two countries in terms of post, pre and, and during production. So you got the, the whole Paris dynamic with Moonraker. So it wasn't just about filming it in Pinewood. So now that Fury Eyes only is now back home, fair enough. You know, maybe, yeah, it was pared down. But you can also see that in set design, the you know the set pieces themselves the whole film is a Europhile film it doesn't go anywhere else you know apart from the obviously the the some location filming in in Bahamas through the underwater scenes but it's it's that sort of everything's very close to home in your eyes only uh, right let's dive into pre-production so following uh, Moonraker as we discussed Cubby um, was looking at taking the films back to the roots of Bond um, and he wanted to make From Russia With Love style espionage type Bond film and they actually looked at bringing back some of the old uh, previous directors um, to direct it and they looked at Terence Young Guy Hamilton uh, Lewis Gilbert and they even looked at Peter Hunt which I thought was really interesting because obviously he was the one and done with Honor Majesty's Secret Service but obviously still um still in with the, uh, the the Bond people. But um, you, the reason that uh, Guy Hamilton and Lewis Gilbert didn't come back is because they'd um, got uh, profits from their previous Bond deals. So that the cost of bringing those back obviously just excluded them from the conversation. So then what happened next was Cubby started to call dinners with his key creatives and just discuss like what the next film was going to be and who to direct. And some of the people that came to those meetings were John Glenn, who was obviously known for shooting Second Unit at that time, Derek Meddins, Peter Lamont, Tom Pesner. I can never know how to pronounce that one. And so they kept um, having these meetings, kept having these conversations. Derek Meddings apparently volunteered his services to direct, but they turned him down. And it kept going, the, the numbers kept dwindling at these meetings until John Glenn was the last one. He was offered, um, invited to Pinewood to a meeting with Cubby, Dana and Michael G. Wilson and then was offered the job. And like I said, he'd never directed before, but he had worked on many of the Bond films, including Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Spy Love Me, Moonraker. Um, and, and he'd been shooting a lot of second unit, but also uh, doing editing as well. And he actually was behind the, uh, the second unit shooting for the pre-title sequence on The Spy Who Loved Me. And so talking about getting being offered the job, John Glenn said, No one was more surprised than me to be asked to direct For Your Eyes Only. I was determined to make my mark on the series for better or for worse. 
He said, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was a complete surprise. It was not only a surprise to me, I think half the film industry was equally surprised. Um, and I used to think to myself, if I ever get the chance to direct, I hope it's a Bond movie. It might say, sound strange to start at the top. You think people start on smaller things and build out, but it's much better to go in at the top. I can assure you. I mean, he would say that, right? So he he, he also talked, uh, obviously he had Roger Moore to back him up, someone he knew very well. He said, I was lucky I had Roger and Roger agreed uh, to have me. We got on very well and there was great humour on set. We never had any crosswords at all and we worked very efficiently. And so from there, John Glenn started bringing in his team of creatives around him. But one thing that John Glenn does claim credit for in the creation of the film is the pre-title sequence. He said that uh, having worked on On Her Majesty's Secret Service, he said, I was very keen to keep the continuity of Bond in mind because at this point they weren't sure whether it was going to be Roger Moore or another... Bond actor uh, if they're going to bring a new actor in so he said that's why I wrote a scene in the churchyard where he's putting flowers on the wife's grave and the helicopter shows up he was thinking that was a way of linking the old films with the new films and that's why we've got that pre-title sequence with Bond laying the flowers at the grave so on to the script just to start off Cubby said we were overcrowding the public on fantasy and outer space I found it very boring too it might suit somebody else but it didn't have to be Bond everyone keeps on saying When are you going to do another Russia with Love type of thing? So we were trying the adventure, Hitchcockian sort of thing, full of suspense, excitement and thrills. So right from the top, you know, comes from the chief. The chief wants to go back and so they do. So Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson start working on the next script. And it was a, a, a plan was to go simple. Obviously, it had a huge risk because they'd just done outrageous sci fi film, basically. Uh, and this was returning back. So, and like we always say on this, go back to Ian Fleming for inspiration. And that's that's what they did. Michael G. Wilson said, consequently, James Bond would rely more on his wits than Q's gadgets to get him out of trouble. We figured it was time Bond headed back in a more realistic direction. And so maybe Alan Wilson uh, were inspired by the, the films that Cubby has cited North by Northwest and the Guns of Navarone. North by Northwest is a stone cold classic though. Um, and so that's a good, a good something decent to use as a base point. So for the story's inspiration itself, they looked at one of the uh, espionage operations of the Cold War. Um, and this involved Cubby's friend, Howard Hughes. In 1968, uh, an explosion sank a Soviet submarine in the Pacific uh, where uh, 70 sailors died. And um, so they just sort of adapted that to make it a British uh, ship. And in that were, was cargo that they couldn't uh, get back because it was too far on the ocean floor. So that became the ATAC. They, take, they took uh, key elements from some of Fleming's stories. So Christatos and Colombo are from Risico or Risico, never know how to pronounce that. And The Murder of the Havelocks is from the novel of, with a short story of Few Eyes Only. They also used unused sequences from previous, previous stories as well. So you've got the, the, identi- the Identigraph, which is, is called the Identicast in uh, the novel of Goldfinger. And uh, the Winter Sports scene is from On Their Majesty's Secret Service. Michael G. Wilson said, I don't like the use of gadgets. We've seen too many of them. They're always a cheat. Usually you set up a gadget that can only be used in a very unique situation that wouldn't apply generally. What I like best is when you set up a situation that the gadget is perfect for and Bond really needs it. Just as he takes it out of his pocket, it's knocked from his hand and plummets nine stories down to the ground. 
Now what's Bond going to do? That's the fun. If only he kept that in mind the whole time. <laughs> Does, it doesn't stick with that, does it? No. Die another day. It really doesn't. <laughs> but yeah, there's a, there's a script in place and uh, it's, it's now they need to build a, a crew to bring the story to life. So a bit about the key crew on the film. This film actually marks a bit of a change in the production crew that worked on the Bond films, possibly because of the budgetary changes that were made to the film, but also because John Glenn was brought on. And and when he came on, he also brought with him a number of people from his second unit team. So he'd obviously worked with them before. He knew he knew how to work with them. So slight adjustment to how the, um, the, the key crew worked on the film. One of the big changes that was made is that this was the first time that Mission Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson had worked together on the screenplay. So this was the debut script from that team. Uh, and it was pretty well received, actually. Um, people thought that it was very well written and it marked a nice starting point for those two working together. Another person that was brought on that marked a quite big change was Bill Conti, who was doing the music. I know we're going to speak about him in a bit, but obviously Bill Conti is better known for Rocky, Rocky II, uh, and also Private Benjamin. But he did say something interesting about working on the Bond films in that there was already a soundtrack song associated with the character which you would use in various scenes. Whereas in Rocky, that's, that was just a song that existed in in the film. So it wasn't necessarily associated with Rocky until later, uh, later on in the film series. Another person that worked on the film was Peter Lamont. Uh, he was production designer on For Your Eyes Only. He had worked on Bond films previously. He was an art director on previous four films, as well as a set director on the ones before that. So quite a big jump up for him to work on as production designer on For Your Eyes Only. And of course, Remy Julien uh, is in the film as a stunt driver. It's the first time he worked on a Bond film and he continued to do uh, six Bond films in total, uh, including For Your Eyes Only. So... Nice entry to the Bond series for Remy Julien. And also there was Bob Simmons, who worked on the film as an action sequences arranger. And obviously we will hear much more about Bob Simmons later on in the podcast series. So there we go. That's the key crew for For Your Eyes Only. But who was going to play Bond? Yeah, exactly. Who was going to do that? Well, there's Roger Moore sitting in the wings. He's done... His three film deal. Um, he's, as we look at it retrospectively, he's done three and he's got four to go. So his original three film contract ends at Spoiler Love Me. And now it's all about a poker face game until 1985. And what's wonderful about this is in 1981 when, or 1980 when they're looking at who's going to play Bond next, Roger Moore's quoted as, as saying that, you know, every love, everybody loves a game of poker. And that's exactly what he feels he was playing with Cubby at the time. I think what's interesting is that, you know, the production team were, if you think about the actors who were being called up to actually screen test, I mean, it must be it must be really demoralising now, so many years on learning that really, at the end of the day, you know, Roger was ultimately going to be Bond anyway, especially when you look at the, the, the cast list in there, like Lewis Collins, uh, David Warbeck, uh, David Robb, Michael Jaston, who went on to do Doctor Who, uh, Michael Billington's in there from the spoiler of me pre-credit sequence. He was also considered for the <laughs> for uh, for your eyes only. 
and uh, even Timothy Dalton. And Timothy Dalton's there saying, well, no, I've seen what you've done with Moonraker. I'm not interested. And you think, well, maybe somebody should have just slipped a, a script under his nose for Fury Eyes only because it was slightly different. Yeah, but again, back to my point, bookended by absurdity, but there is a thriller in there, and maybe Dalton could have done something with that. Um, so, yeah, so you've got this you've got this wonderful argy-bargy going on, and Roger's always talking about how, um, you know, it didn't bother me. I knew Kubi would never find anyone who would work as cheaply as I did. You know, those, those are his kind of quotes around the time. And you do have this, this wonderful, almost media war, which everybody's involved in. But like I say, I really do feel for those actors who were perhaps putting themselves into the fray for this and then ultimately thinking, well, I shouldn't have bothered really. More was always going to be it, wasn't it? <laughs> I bet this happens every time. But sometimes they might go in, right, I know I'm not going to get this, but I've just got to get in there just to show my face because in 15 years <laughs> when something happens, I might get a chance. That's what Billington was doing every time. Yeah. Yeah, Dalton was playing the long game. It worked out for him. <laughs> Or did it? <laughs> or did it exactly? There's a, there's a wonderful story about Roger returning actually, which which happens at the pre-production party, which which takes place, and they're they're all uh, feasting on Fleming delights in in their menus and stuff like this. And there's a wonderful article here by William Hall, who actually wrote this for uh, Sky Magazine back in the early nineties, and he he's talking about this at this point because it's about to premiere on Sky Movies Gold. Wow. Um, so this is this is about to happen. So he recounts this story where he's actually at the the pre production party, and Roger has taken to the stage and he's about to tell everybody about you know what's happening with the film, and he's doing this wonderful self deprecating story like he always does about you know how you know he respects Sean so much. Now the the biggest thing that happens at this party, and this is a real I th- I think kind of exclusive. And you can market this as, as much as you want, guys. But I haven't heard this anywhere else. But what happened on that night almost was the death of Roger Moore. So Roger has taken to the stage. And above the stage, there is a massive ice sculpture, which which is emblazoned 007. Now, Roger is halfway through talking about how he compares himself to, to Sean or doesn't. and uh, And suddenly there's this massive crack because the heat in the room has melted this ice sculpture and Roger <laughs> looks up above him and suddenly the seven from the 007 as is, is careering down towards him. He jumps out the way. If it had hit him, he was dead and it smashes oh across the stage. <laughs> and Roger, <laughs> this is this is a full account and you can read it. Well, you might not be able to read it because I don't know where you can find this. I've got it in print here. But Roger takes to the mic and says, well, I suppose we should call that license to kill. <laughs> or maybe maybe for your eyes only. <laughs> he then goes on to double down, triple down on the gag by saying, I heard I'd be stabbed in the back by Hollywood, but this is going a bit too far. And it, it's it's an amazing story. So <laughs> Roger is finally, he, he is back. It's confirmed he's back, but he was ultimately almost, um, you know, severed with this with this ice seven. So I just thought that was a nice story to, to end on in terms of Roger returning. I reckon Michael Billington was up there sawing the ice away. <laughs> so with Roger in place, the rest of the cast uh, started to be assembled around him as well. 
Returning with Desmond Llewellyn as Q. This is just a classic Roger Moore anecdote here for you. Um, but um, when uh, Q was filming the um, scene with Roger with the identigraph, he said, I was sitting in the corner of the set rehearsing my part when John Glenn came over and said, look, I'd like to learn these extra lines for this afternoon's shooting. And he handed me a sheet of paper covered in technical gobbledygook. He said, I can't possibly learn this in time. And I replied aghast, whereupon John muttered, of course you can, and and pushed off. Two hours later, he returned with Roger, both grinning broadly. And they said, don't worry, Q, we've decided not to use those lines after all. So, uh, yeah, classic bit of uh, Roger banter there. Also returning was Geoffrey Keane as Frederick Gray, Walter Gotel as General Gogol, who we've seen many times already, and also Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny. I love her scene in this at the start of the film. I think it's great. And I think that's another um, example of when it could have been any Bond actor there, because when he comes in, he throws the hat onto the hat stand and she turns around to look to see who it is. And that would have been a great way to introduce an alternate Bond as well, I think. So um... I always find that that a bit awkward with um, Lois Maxwell on that one, because I think this is the first film where she really starts to out-age the Bond mm. and you can see it straight away. And, and the relationship changes because of that. He... He goes up to her and like has a, it's like a bit of strange flirting, but it's no longer flirting with a possible suitor. It's flirting with an older lady and just like being a little bit patronising towards her. Whereas in the early ones, you think, oh, maybe he's maybe they're going to get together. And this one, it's like, oh, that's nice of him, isn't it? <laughs> being friendly. Although he's probably still he's older than her, isn't he? Wow. Yeah, it is. It's slightly more genteel, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So Bernard Lee was again hired to play M. However, things didn't didn't pan out. Uh, Desmond Llewellyn uh, said he was brought down to Pinewood, but he just couldn't do it. He was very ill. And uh, John Glenn said that Bernard Lee knew that his time was up. It was very obvious he wasn't up to it. He admitted that. He accepted that. And so tragically, before he could return to complete his scenes as M, he uh, died of stomach cancer on 16th of January 1981 at the age of 73. And the producers didn't want to immediately recast M. And so they decided to introduce Butler's favourite character, Tanner. Hey, finally. Not just in Bond, but in anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Tanner is Bond's best friend in from the novels, uh, best friend in the service. And so the first, the first on-screen Tanner... James Villiers said, Roger and Broccoli came to a play I was in at the time. They said they wanted me to be in the next Bond film. Get down to Pinewood tomorrow. It's urgent. And so he was thrust into that scene. The script was then rewritten. So the character of M was said to be on leave. And that meant uh, Tanner was able to take over as the acting head of MI6. Um, And the brief to Bond was done alongside the Minister of Defence. So I think this point is the point where I really feel the For Your Eyes Only, it's like a Bond light. Because as soon as I see this other character taken over from Bernard Lee, Hmm. I instantly think, oh, this is this Bond film's missing something. It's it's like it's it's not quite a proper Bond film. Yeah, and and that and and you and that's in some of the later ones as well. I get that same feeling, but never so much as the For Your Eyes Only. It's like a big hit straight away. You're like, oh. That's suddenly that's a downer on the film. Yeah, I agree with that. I think they kind of, if in the novels and as you purported, there is about the fact that you know Bond and Tanner are good friends. You don't get that feeling, do you? No. And I think that you know Tanner is almost like it's almost like that soapy actor that you you kind of ultimately 
I mean, he does the job really well in the fact that you you really don't like him, you know, in the way that Roger should not like him either, as being an oppressive boss or what have you in this. And it is it's it's kind of, it's kind of that soap opera element, isn't it? Where there's an actor who he can do it and he does it quite well, but yeah, it's just that it's that one you love to hate. You really love to hate that guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's 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 really it's, it doesn't it doesn't work well with with the law of, no. of Bond, if you like. I I think they should have left out the the M scene altogether. It would have been it would have benefited from not even because you don't ne- always have to have that in. You just wouldn't have noticed it. But the thing but the thing I think about this Tanner, there's a there's a theme I feel with Your Eyes Only, and that it feels a little bit like a TV show in, in a lot of bits in the way that it's filmed and and the way that it looks. And when there's that Tanner scene, it feels very much like a TV show because it looks like they've taken a film and then they've gone, right, we're going to make a TV series out of it. And then some of the characters change and all that sort of stuff. So it does cheapen it a little bit for me. But I, I think I just like them to remove that scene, really, and just not add an M reference. Yeah, because you, you kind of get that feeling in The Spy You Love Me where where Jeffrey Keane as is, is the MOD is, he, you know, he's he's walking with Bond along Fast Lane, giving almost giving him the briefing about going to Egypt. And and it's kind of, that's kind of, that's almost like a, a substitute M scene in, in The Spy You Love Me, yeah. where Bond then goes off on his mission. And maybe they just could have done that. Yeah, you know, may, that maybe that would have been yeah. enough. Okay, so we uh, there's a load of new cast in this film, as there are with all Bond films. So I will talk through the women. The women. Um, <laughs> first one, of course, is Carol Bouquet as Melina Havelock. Brendan's already explained her role in in the film, but she's the daughter of uh, a, a British marine archaeologist, Tim Sir Timothy Havelock, and his wife. And of course, based on the character Judy Havelock from uh, For Your Eyes Only. I'm not a big fan of Melina Havelock in this film. I just think she's a little bit dry. Yeah, I think she's a little bit. As mm. I'm going to keep referencing this, but I think she's a little bit TV show, <laughs> not very, not really movie. Uh, don't forget, we'll do an. Um, ep- she'll be have a, a segment of her own when we get to uh, H for Havelock. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's not going to stop me moaning about her in this. <laughs> but yeah, she's she's she sort of plays the. I mean, she, she's she's quite what's the phrase? Um, unhappy, but a little bit wooden in her unhappiness. Obviously, you look at it and go, "Well, she would be unhappy if all this bad stuff has happened to her." But it sort of lacks any sort of characterization in it and doesn't seem very like like he has any sort of chemistry with her. One of the most interesting characters in it is, of course, Lynn Holly Johnson, who um, we've already spoken about in an earlier episode in D. Go back to that one if you want to find out more about BB Dahl, um, who's an ice skater. She's um, she's like the protege of um, Christastos, but he's basically sponsoring her to become an Olympic ice skater. And it's never really explained why. At some point in the film, she she suggests that he's sort of grooming her, but that's never talked about in, throughout the rest of the film. So it's a little bit of a strange link to that character. I don't really know why he's sponsoring an Olympic ice skater. Um, but she plays the first time Bond has a sort of Bond girl who is actually a girl. And it's the first time he they really draw attention to the fact that he's older and he isn't going to actually take on any of her advances. Um, so it's an interesting character. And I've read a lot of articles and I've watched a lot of interviews where people really praise this. And they say it's such a very smart move for the for the Bond franchise to to do this and draw attention to the fact that Bond is older. I don't think it is. I just think it's a little bit weird and it would work for one scene. But they just keep going on about it and drawing attention to the fact that he's older and he keeps making these crap jokes about like the ice cream stuff. Oh, I'll get you an ice cream. 
just unnecessary. Like, yeah, we get the point. Yeah, he's older. Don't keep reminding us about it. But she does become quite important later on in the script because she's actually instrumental in helping save them at the end and saving the day. And has an interesting scene with Topol later on. Cassandra Harris is in there as uh, Little Von Schlaff who is sort of the mistress of uh, uh, Columbo, but she's more like, she's a, she's meant to be his mistress, but she's more like an agent of his and she helps him, you know, go around and sort of solve various things and has a liaison with Roger to, to find stuff out about him. Of course, she was, um, was she married to Pierce Brosnan at the time or was she yeah, engaged? She was married to uh, Pierce so, at this time. So there you go. So that's an interesting link because, of course, Pierce Brosnan was on set quite a bit uh, uh, during this. And um, uh, little little von Schlaff was killed by Locke um, on the be- in the beach boogie scene. So um, she does have quite an interesting role in this, and she's quite a. I, I think she's quite a good character for Roger. It's, it's probably one of the first times where they've tried to give him a character, a, a sort of female character that he works with, who's nearer, more nearer to his age. It's probably as a as a response to the BB Dahl stuff as well. And then you've got you've got Jill Bennett as Jacoba Brink, and she plays um, the guide of BB Dahl. So she's sort of her um, trainer, coach, but she's also more intertwined in the story. And that there's a moral issue where she's been hired by Chris Dastos um, to look after her, but she's also by doing that she's sort of in his camp. But by the end of it, she actually realizes that she'd rather look after BB Dahl than stick with Christassos plan and again she, her and BB Dahl become instrumental in taking down Christassos at the end and also looks like she's going to start working for Topol. So there you go they're, they're, they're the uh, the women the women of um, uh, Fioris only. Okay so the villains of Fioris only um, have you got a spare couple of days because there's a real rose gallery in this one some of them are not as obvious as you might think which is a wonderful trope, which is uh, probably a Michael G. Wilson thing. I think Fury Eyes Only is the first film in the series where there's a real ambiguity about villainy. So you have all the villains that we are going to talk about in just a moment. Then you've got in Octopussy, is she or isn't she involved? And then you've got Koskoff in The Living Daylights. And then Michael G. Wilson also flips it on his head in, in License to Kill because actually it's from the villain's perspective as to who he can trust and who's involved in terms of who's going to bring him down. So this is a big theme for the 80s. And the, the villainy in Fury Eyes Only is, although it's, it's, it's understated, it's slightly, maybe you can argue, underwritten a little bit, but it's and quite pedestrian in some regards. But there, there's a whole cacophony of people involved in this. So let, let's go right from the very beginning. We're going to go to the pre-title sequence soon. But let's first of all address question mark, because question mark's involved, or as I like to call it, hashtag Blofeld, not Blofeld. So there you go. There's the starter for 10. <laughs> Blimey, what a way to start. Um, we then go to um, Corfu. Um, after we've heard that Golgol has got usual friends in Greece, whatever that means, um, <laughs> usual friends in Greece, we find out that Gonzalez is involved, and Gonzalez is the Cuban hitman who uh, has got a villa near Madrid, which looks a lot like Corfu, um, but also he's got a, a sideline in charter planes from, from Corfu Airport uh, <laughs> armed with guns. So that's amazing. So Gonzalez is involved. Now, the, the interesting thing I found in the research for this episode is the fact that Gonzalez is played by a guy called Stefan Khalifa. And Stefan Khalifa, he, he wasn't a stranger in the 80s, although you, you might not have you know, noticed it at the time. Um, he goes on from Fury's only to go on to play the 
computer school teacher to Richard Pryor in Superman Three. If you can, if you remember those scenes where that's where Richard Pryor is developing his skills in how to, you know, deduct a cent from a paycheck and make a, a shitload of money out of it. Um, well, Gonzalez, the guy who plays Gonzalez, is involved in that. He he does that. He's also uh, the tank driver or the tank gunner in um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So Gonzalez, he's got a wonderful stint from the beginning of the 80s to the end of, of being involved in, in some kind of nefarious uh, um, goings-on. So there's there's Gonzalez for you. Now, uh, beyond Gonzalez, you then see that Locke is involved, so you see him arrive in the car. Emile Leopold Locke, the Brussels um, underworld enforcer, who presumably wears a high-vis jacket and a, and a badge to show him as such, apparently. <laughs> but uh, no, he, he arrives at the poolside of Gonzalez, and and pays him uh, the money. There's a wonderful point in that scene in the in the film actually when Gonzalez is is shot down into the pool with a dart in his back, and you see Locke. It's a really really small moment, but Locke actually tells his bodyguard to sit back down, and it's almost like he wants to see Bond create a mess, almost so yeah. that they can just they can just cut and run with the money. It's a really really small moment, but I think it, I think it's I think it's a really nice moment in in this film. I agree. Um, I, I really like that scene. It, it sort of adds a depth to the character where you go, well, he's actually smarter than everyone else here. He's 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 not he's not just a, your average henchman. He's actually two steps yeah. ahead. And I think that, yeah. that sets the scene for him later on because you suddenly think, well, actually, he's probably smarter than Bond or as smart. So he's actually going to be a bit of a contest, whereas they very rarely do that with, with henchmen. Sometimes they just... You always think more will get them, but he's actually he's also like quite a good looking guy as well. He looks like he could be a counterpart to Bond. Like he's he's pretty cool, he knows what he's doing. So yeah, I I really like Locke. I think he's a good uh, henchman. Yeah, it's it's strange actually with with the guy who played him, Michael Gothard, who's who's renowned for having a really deep and resonant voice in his acting. He doesn't say a word in this film. Um, but he was allegedly the guy who suggested that that Locke have octagonal glasses. Just to give him an edge, um, so well it makes so, it easier but, for Roger to, to identify to, him, yeah. to do a really crap picture of him because that's the only that's the <laughs> yeah, only exactly, characteristic yeah. that they got right. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. Um, so so locks on the scene. Um, we are then introduced to as we go into the snowier climbs. We're then introduced to Eric Kriegler, uh, the wonderful uh, East German champion. Uh, who Roger knows already already knows about him. Uh, he's obviously a celebrity. Uh, we later find out that he only eats health foods and he won't even talk to girls. That's a classic. I don't know what that's a classic anyway. Fleming trope, isn't it? That um, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. Uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a recurring um, yeah. trope, isn't it? Exactly. It's, it's 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 really interesting. This is what I think builds really well in Fury Eyes Only, and it's it's almost again almost forgotten. It's so underplayed, it gets lost. And people think these are just very pedestrian villains, but actually these these, these do work well on, on reflection. <laughs> saying that, saying that, we've got then Charles Dance, who um, enters a lift with a menacing face, and his name is Klaus. We'll never know that. It's just that's how it's credited. So Charles Dance is involved in the cohort of villainy. Um, and then, of course, we're an hour and 18 into the film before we realise that Christatos, Aris Christatos, is is the uh, is the villain here. Again, he's so he's so he's so understated, and and the, the fact that there's the Columbo and Christatos playoff between each other. Um, and I think you know, with the film being 40 years old, I'm I'm giving no spoilers out here by saying that um, Columbo 
isn't a villain, but we'll get onto our lies in a minute. I'll brush over that. But Christatos, um, he has no other motive other than just trying to get this uh, this ATAC system back to Gogol, who we'll see again at the end. I think Gogol's appearance is interesting because if you think about Moonraker, Fiori's only, there's been that there's been almost that partnership going on uh, where they've shared information, they've got the the end result. Fiori's only changes things again, and it becomes a little bit colder, and it's all about actually the the. They are up against each other again, but Gogol's introduction, uh, and we'll talk about the sort of the end game later, I'm sure. But but Gogol's introduction is interesting in the fact that um, you know when Dayton happens, well, you know he he just accepts it and, and off he goes again. You know, it's, 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 it, there's a real interesting dynamic amongst all these villains here. So the villains of Fiori's only are, are varied. Um, some of them are lackluster, but. I think only in terms of how how they are written. I think the actual threat of them all is is very valid. I've got a couple of thoughts about villains in Fiori's only. One is Golgol. When when he's at the start of the film and in, and you see him in his office with the, uh, the the like secretary, why are they showing him like having an affair with the secretary? Does that suggest he's evil, or does it suggest he's you know he's got a fun side? I'm not sure why they show that. I, I, I never understand it every time I see it. But the other the other thing as well is, is it Kriegler. He is useless. He's the most useless henchman. He's like he's very good at shooting apparently and skiing. But those two things, when he's actually trying to get Roger Moore, he can't. He's trying to shoot him from a very short distance, can't get him. And then when he's skiing after him, he's useless at it. He can't. He, he, he can't get him. And he ends up throwing a motorbike at him but it only goes about a meter and it's about three meters away from roger it's he's useless he's yeah he's going down to my worst villains if you ever do that episode (laughs) let's talk about the allies we've touched upon him before but top hole obviously is milos colombo we've done a whole uh section on colombo so you can go back to see uh listen to that one but he is christos's enemy and former smuggling partner who convinces Bond to side with him. So he's actually named after a guy called Giacciano Colombo, who is a Ferrari engine designer, uh, someone that Fleming was uh, a big fan of. Then you've got Jack Headley as Timothy Havelock. He's sort of an ally. Uh, He's working with uh, British intelligence somehow, and uh, he's Molina's father who gets murdered. And then finally, you've got uh, John Moreno as Luigi Ferrara, the MI6 contact in Northern Italy, who does a very sort of... uh, uh, spaghetti's a meatball type Italian accent for, for when he meets Roger. And talking about being in the film, Moreno said, I got to Cortina D'Ampezzo and suddenly I was given a stand-in. I was given my own caravan, I was given my own chauffeur and the whole Bond crew were flown by plane and then bossed up to Cortina. We were given a pair of winter trousers, thermal vest, feather line overcoat, boots and gloves. And I thought that this crew of 350 people and they were handing in all this and then that's how I realised how bloody big it all was really. So he was obviously, you know, uh, in awe of how big this film was. He'd never been on a film set like this before. So, um, yeah, big, big part for him. So the film opens uh, in quite a touching moment, actually. Bond placing flowers on the grave of Tracy. And her, her date of her death is given as 1969, the date of Honor Majesty's uh, release. But then it all, it all goes awry and... Uh, there's a, a random bald guy in a wheelchair that we're not allowed to say because of the Kevin McClory stuff, but it's Blofeld. It's alluded to as Blofeld. So those uh, pre-credits, the sequence, were filmed in a church in Stoke Poges in Buckinghamshire for the cemetery scene. And then the helicopter scenes were filmed at abandoned Beckton 
gasworks in East London. Those gasworks were also used in Full Metal Jacket as well. But John Glenn got the idea for this remote-controlled helicopter after he saw a child playing with a, a, a remote-controlled car. That was the inspiration. That sounds about right. <laughs> uh, so flying a helicopter through a natural warehouse was deemed to be too dangerous. And so the scene is shot using forced perspective. And I sent you guys a picture of of the yes. Derek, Derek Meddings stood next to the uh, the the miniature, uh, and it's uh, it is quite confusing to to see him. He looks like a massive giant, and so yeah, they flew that helicopter through remote control helicopter as though it was entering the warehouse. And the footage inside the building was actually shot on location with a life size helicopter, which was held over a rail. Stuntman Martin Grace stood in for Bond when he's on the outside of the helicopter. At some points, I thought it was a. a a doll or a dummy i think that's blofeld is is a doll so yeah roger moore himself did the inside inside the model scenes and so yeah the the bald guy in the wheelchair is meant to be blofeld but these this legal battle ongoing battle with kevin mcclory meant they couldn't name him or or properly show the character but then obviously the character gets disposed of down a, a giant chimney which in a way is is a way of saying the bond series doesn't need this character also has that classic line which is a cubby line regarding the i'll buy you a, a, a delicatessen thoughts in stainless steel stainless in stainless steel uh, which is a cubby it's a cubby thing it relates to uh something to mafia, the mafia. mafia isn't it yeah 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 it just makes no sense it's just one no. of the most baffling lines in movie history yeah maybe maybe him and a couple of mates got it yeah, but but is is that worth it? I mean, because it's it's a bizarre line for the character that is supposedly Blofeld to, uh, to say. That, that whole pre-title sequence, it's none of it's worth it. <laughs> Maybe the Tracy bit at the start, and then it just spirals into madness. Like even the the soundtrack to it, it's like some weird seventies <laughs> porn film. Just twangy guitars as he's flying around his helicopter. It's like I don't know. I understand the concept of them going right. Let's bring it back to Fleming and let's remind people that you know there's other films in this. There's Tracy. He's got an emotional story behind him, and there's a villain that he's got an attachment to. But it's done in such a stupid, weird way that it actually negates any of those things. So just by removing it, you could like it would be much more plausible as a film mm. to, to to kind of put those stuff in. We could do a whole episode on that that whole start sequence because it's such a strange anomaly in the Bond series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I agree. I think I always put my place in the writers' room and sort of think about that um, <laughs> in terms of how they actually got to that conclusion. I just you can't imagine that actually being thrashed out in a room with people. I mean, it's you know, it's just you could just see John Glenn, who's about to flagship his first ever Bond movie, and starts to ask around the room in terms of what they should do next. How do we end this particular sequence? And and some guy has put his hand up and said that, and he's like, uh, 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 really? So um, you know, it's just it's just amazing. I mean, the other thing is in that as well. I mean. He, <laughs> it's, Watch, you watch the way the, the way that it plays out. I mean, this look. I love this film, but like I said, right at the very beginning of this, it is bookended by absurdity. We'll come to the back end later, but there is this absurdity, and there's this there's this moment where where he turns everything on. He, he's got his wheelchair, and he turns everything <laughs> on. He presses every single button, and actually, all he needed was one. He just press on, and the whole thing will come up. I mean, the other thing is on the left hand side, he's got a video showing the tower of uh, the tower bridge, 
So Tower Bridge is in view. When he cuts the helicopter, he's over the Houses of Parliament. Well, to be honest with you, you've zoomed in a mile, mate. So how the hell are you flying yourself around with such great dexterity in a factory? Because at the moment, (laughs) your camera is zoomed in so far, that's ridiculous. And it's just, you know, the only saving grace, I will say, the only thing I will say about this scene, which is a self-comment, but... On the day that that scene was filmed, I was coming into the world. So whilst Blofeld was thrown down a chimney, I was coming out of another dark place. But I think you probably <laughs> want to edit that one out, Tom. No, no, I'm going to repeat that and bring up the volume. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's just it's just it's just a stupid stupid thing that just cheapens every part that they're trying to draw attention to. But I mean, for me, the 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 bit that always gets me is when he slaps Blofeld's head. It's like just all those films that all that time you spent building up Blofeld and you slap his head and he's dead. And you took him down the thing. It's just, we'll discuss this again at a later date. Um, I'm sure we're going to bring this up a few more times. Yeah, li- yeah I've over uh, anyway. I will say one thing actually about that um, is that um, it's efficiently shot and you can tell it John Glenn has shot this because... The, it's actually really good editing um, in yeah. the in the effect yeah. sequence between like seeing what's inside the helicopter, what's outside the helicopter, what the stuntman's doing. It gives you a sense of perspective. Yeah. Well, it's like a second unit shot. And it, it's all perfect. Yeah. And, and, and the tension does build up. But yeah, it's just absolutely mental. And something that people always point out is how did Blofeld get onto that roof of that building in his wheelchair yeah. in the first place? <laughs> There's no yeah. steps. And also, and also... Did he use the helicopter he's, to drop himself off? trapped in... He's created like this intricate remote controlled helicopter system <laughs> that nobody's ever managed to do before. And the, and the, there's a wire that's visible to pull out. Like, do it underneath the plane, do it somewhere where he can't get to it. Absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, as you say, it's a fantastically pulled together visual, visual physical is. accomplishment. But then he's they're just not bothered actually working out the, the concept behind it. Anyway, enough about um, the pre-title sequence because I could talk about that for ages. We'll save it for the pub. Let's let's move on to the shooting. One of the big locations. There's not many locations in this, as we've discussed. They don't move around the world quite a lot, although they do. Although it's not all in Europe. The shooting in a lot of the earlier scenes uh, and a couple of the later scenes is in Corfu. One of those main scenes is in uh, Villa Silva, a, a place called Canoni, which is just above uh, Corfu town. Uh, and that was the location for the Spanish villa uh, early on in the film. Um, and during this sequence as well and, and later on, one of the interesting things they did in the town is they painted all of the uh, walls of the houses in the scenes white to add this sort of style they wanted. And the houses weren't white before, um, which is quite a big thing to do. I don't know how they managed to do that and how much they paid the, the people who owned the houses to do it, but... Um, that they set this, set this ambiance of what they wanted from it. And also, Glenn decided to use the local slopes around the olive trees and everything as well for the 2CV sequence, um, chase sequence at the start. And it was it took 12 days in, in that location to film that whole, that whole sequence. And this is where Remy Julien comes in and he was driving the, the, the Citroen uh, 2CV throughout that whole sequence. Apparently four 2CVs were used. During, the, during that sequence um, and with various modifications made to them for stunts, they all were all added uh, these flat four engines to make them powerful enough to actually do the chase sequence. Um, and one had a like a revolving plate added onto the roof because there's one scene where the car gets turned upside down and you see it spin around and that actually had a plate on the top to, to spin that sequence around. There are some other scenes that are done in Corfu, but I'm not going to talk about those for a bit because they're involved in the, something we're going to discuss 
bit further down the line. Stu, you've got a connection to Corfu. Uh, yeah, a little bit, yeah. I uh, lived there for three years, and um, in fact, you know, a lot of the locations actually came into my life um, a lot whilst I was there. It's not the ma- it's not a massive island, but um, given the time I was there, I, I for instance, I, I've mentioned this recently um, elsewhere, but I I first place I lived abroad was actually on the the beach of St George, where um, Countess Liesel has her villa and and sadly meets her end. So uh, yeah, that was a, a very special haunt for me. And yeah, all those all those locations, such as like Padgy, where they do the whole um, uh, rolling onto the roof of the, the CV and all that kind of stuff. Got some good friends there as well. I mean, if if anybody listening to this has got when when you have the opportunity to, you know, get back out and venture into the wider world again, please make your way up to that village up in northwest Corfu. Um, funny enough, it's in a jurisdiction called um, Agios Georgius, which means Saint George, and also you got Saint George's Beach. Uh, which I've just mentioned, and then of course the whole um, sinking of the St George's is involved in the film as well. So they, they drew they drew a lot of these names out from from the location itself. But uh, yeah, there's there's lots of wonderful stories around Corfu in terms of how the Bond team actually helped um, the locals. Like you were just saying a moment ago, Tom, about painting the houses and stuff like that. They actually they felt indebted to the community to to look after them, that they actually then offered post-production to actually paint all their houses back to whatever colour they wanted. Uh, they brought massive trucks in of Coca-Cola and, and all this wonderful food and stuff like that. There are some wonderful stories out there in this little, wonderful little uh, Greek island. So, uh, yeah, if you ever are able to get back out there, then definitely get yourselves to to, uh, to Corfu and Nagios, Georgia, and Padgy. Up in the north. I'm glad we got your information because I was a bit worried about those houses. I imagined all these people living in those houses now, still with painted white, thinking oh, <laughs> they just left. But that's that's a nice. It's nice to know. Yeah, no, they de- they definitely looked after them. In fact, one of the guys, um, one of the guys I was talking to um, last year um, when I was there was so uh, he actually is a guy who um, he's one of the guys who sticks his head out of the bus when the, when they get stuck in that bit when bonds rolled over. <laughs> And and, the, and and everybody's going, oh, what's going on? Whatever. He's one of the guys with his head out of the bus, and and um, he was having a great chat to me about. He, he lived in the the near nearby village, whatever, and they were looking for people to get involved, and um, and th- and there he is. Anyway, I met him. He's much older, obviously now, but um, but no, there, there are some great stuff, and they don't mind talking about it. It's it's actually it's not very sold over there. As a location, you know, you see some places like Thailand or, <coughs> excuse me, some of the, some of those places where Bond is, you know, is quite prolific in terms of its location shooting. But Corfu is very understated. You know, they, they mm. don't talk about it much, but if you if you get talking to them, you find some wonderful things out. So yeah, and I suppose I suppose that leads on nicely um, to uh, where we go next, which is the whole, if you like, the pivotal scene of the film. And maybe not just the film, but also a pivotal scene of the franchise, a pivotal scene in terms of Roger, a pivotal scene in terms of how John Glenn approaches the franchise from this point here on and in. So we come to the car kick moment of Your Eyes Only. And this is filmed on the old fortress of, of Corfu Town. Now, I think when you look at people talking about the Bond films and you look at what their top 10 moments are and, and what have you, they don't necessarily, you know, put your eyes only into the basket and say that whole film is in my top 10 but you do see this particular scene as part of their top 10 which is this definitive moment where roger is about to kick this car over the cliff and i think that says something for the film if if not everything it says something and i think it's really nice now the car kick yes roger was nervy about it uh it's well documented that he was he was 
bit unsure as to whether this was really going to be his bag. He knew it was kind of a Bondian thing to do. wasn't sure whether it was his thing to do. And there's that lovely moment in the inside of uh, Fewer Eyes Only, a documentary, which is on the special edition DVDs and Blu-ray, uh, where you see this behind-the-scenes shot of Roger. And he's holding on to um, actually a very Greek piece, which is a, a comboloi, which is uh, memory beads, or uh, like almost what we would call now like stress reliever. So he stood there, and he's actually fiddling with these beads in his hand as he's looking on the, this scene and quite pensive. And you can sort of see that actually, yeah, you know, he probably really was quite worried about this. And it's, you know, it's not like the kind of bit of footage that was filmed ready for mainstream media where, oh, look, here's Roger on set and he's about to do this or anything. You know, that's actually a real very factual piece of, of behind the scenes footage of, of him being concerned about what he's about to do. I think from from my point of view, it's it's interesting to see that Roger felt like that because when you look at some of the things he's done before and you look at the way in which he shot a guy through the balls whilst he was eating his lobster bisque in The Spy You Love Me, or you you know you look at the way in which he's conducted himself in other areas of his tenure so far, th- this isn't that far removed, but you can see it is, it is quite it's quite final in terms of what the action is, in terms of what he needs to do. Now, <clears throat> going back to the geography of the piece, the car kick's really interesting. And the reason why I find it interesting is having have that, that background as to what the location is and, and how they actually film this. I don't know whether it's intentional, and it probably isn't intentional. It might just have been just a great place to do it because it is a, a great part of the fortress in which to conduct the stunt that they wanted to do. But when you look at that scene, and for anybody watching this film again uh, and wanting to know more about it, the scene that you see there where you have this wonderful frame shot of the car on the side of the cliff, Roger walking slowly towards it, that wonderful uh, brassy bass note that Conti plays, and then that really unnerving bit of synth that's going on whilst Roger's walking towards the car. You're not quite sure what he's about to do. But that the way that that, that, that shot is framed, with Roger and Locke in the middle, and on the left of side of Roger, you've got the island of Corfu. And on the right side of the shot, you've actually got the actual coastline of Albania. Now, the, the, the water behind them, the, the stretch of sea that you see behind that shot, is actually fictionally where the uh, St. George's has actually sank. So this is a pivotal moment, not just in terms of tenure, franchise, um, character, and all that kind of stuff, but in terms of story, it's brilliant. Because when you watch that again, and you understand the geography of that, it's it's superb because at this point, one hour and 18 minutes into the film, we're now understanding exactly how Bond knows who the villains are and who they aren't. Because this is his this is his pivotal moment, not just the car, but what he does, where they are, and how it's framed. So next time you watch the car kick, love it for that reason, because it, it, it actually there's more to it than simply him just kicking it. It's great. Yeah, I wonder, did they shoot any alternate versions of it where he didn't kick the car? Because the throwing of the thing into the car would have been enough to send it over, right? Yeah, there's a few wider angles, um, and I think you can see those on the on the DVD as well. I, I'm not aware of them not doing that version, if you like. But um... well, Apparently they filmed, because Roger argued against that, that, that shot, so they to, to get him to do it, they said, all right, we'll film both, Roger. And then um, we'll see which works best. And I think they used a combination of both where they actually kicks it off and he throws the thing in. It really does foreshadow what happens in the series thereafter. And you think about some of the dark elements with all the hokum of, of what goes on in Octopussy. You know, there's some deeply sinister moments in Octopussy as well. You know, A View to a Kill, you've obviously got Zorin, you know, bringing down all of his men with an Uzi. 
and then of course we know where Dalton goes next. So, you know, it, it is it's all it is almost a precedent. If anybody else was thinking, oh, when's the inflatable gondola coming out? When's the anaconda going to be killed with a biro? <laughs> it, it's it, it's almost like it's almost like that's you know it's a statement, and it, although it happens very quickly, it's a great statement. It's a great part of the film. Yeah, we get echo- it's funny though because people talk about it being like the point where Bond goes dark, but. Connery would have done that in every scene. He wouldn't have minded that at all. It was just the Roger ones that he had a bit of a problem with it. Yeah, true. and we get echoes of it in No Time to Die, don't we? Um, with when he kills Logan Ash with the kick of the tree. Yeah. So it's still having echoes today. All right. So from leaving Corfu, the production went to Greece, uh, and that was in ni- October 1980, and they went to shoot at Trinity Rock in a place called Meteora. Um, and this obviously where is the cli- where the climax of the film takes place. And so, the, where the, as you said before, it's a monastery um, of the Holy Trinity, and it's 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 built on the top of this rocky outcrop. It's like four hundred meters high, and it's a UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site. And the reason that the monasteries were built on top of these rocks, apparently, is be- to keep the, out the women and unworthies, because you had to climb a, ra- a ladder or a rope to get up there. So I thought it was quite interesting. Um, but obviously the story is that... Because women can't climb ladders. Because women can't climb ladders, yes. Yeah, I, not my <laughs> we words. We all know this. Not my words, the monks. So the, the the famous story behind it is that Cubby had done a deal with the, the bishop, the local bishop, to shoot at the monastery. But when they actually came to do it, there were new monks on the site who uh, decided that they didn't want to participate in the filming um, and so when the production got there, they made their life really, really difficult because they said that the film was promoting sin. And what they actually did is when they were shooting, they would put things out of their windows, hang them out um, to just to make things really difficult um, for continuity. And so this actually went to court in Greece uh, and, and, and it was decided that the monk's property were the interiors. Um, and the exteriors and the surrounding landscape with the local governments. So this is why uh, the monks would hang stuff out of their windows and hang ha- hang their washing out and stuff because that was considered inside. And so, yeah, they were basically just trying to spoil the shots for them. So what they ended up doing to get around this difficulty is they built a mock monastery um, on another outcrop nearby and they shot most of their interiors uh, on stages at Pinewood. Now, as Brendan mentioned earlier, there's a rock climbing sequence in this. Uh, and the stuntman, Rick Sylvester, who did the Spy Who Loved Me mountain jump, he was brought in for stunt, the, the rock climbing. He he had basically been pestering them saying, you know, if you ever do rock climbing, I want to do the scene uh, in, in Bond for it. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a flat scene. I don't think it works completely well. But obviously the most um, iconic scene is when Bond falls from the face of the rock and is saved by his rope. But that apparently that doing that scene could have been fatal for the stuntman doing it. So Derek Meadens had to uh, develop a system that would dampen the stop. But uh, yeah, talking about doing the stunt, Sylvester said that his nerves nearly got the better of him. He said, from where we were shooting, you could see the local cemetery and the box to stop my fall looked like a casket. You didn't need to be an English major to connect the dots. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's an. In- can I be really? Can I be really controversial on that one? Yeah, Tom? go on. I actually think that stunt beats the bungee jumping golden eye. Wow. Okay, go on. I, but for everything you've just said, I think there is so much uncertainty about it. I mean, by 1995, you could do a bungee jump. Don't worry about it. You could do a bungee jump. <laughs> you know, 1980, you you you're actually literally throwing yourself backwards off a rock face. 
and you're employing your faith into a <laughs> an effect supervisor who's going to make sure that that softens the blast. I mean, geez, what what you know that could quite easily go so wrong. Yeah, yeah, probably more so than a bungee jump, and a, you know so. Again, it's it's kind of overlooked. It's it's quiet. It's not scored. Not really scored anyway. You get the drama of the score from Conti in terms of the villain arriving above Bond to kick him in the face. But it, you know, th- there's nothing more punctuated apart from Roger Moore's "ooh," and that's it. You know, it's like that's all it is. Um, but there's a huge stunt in there. There's a huge. Stunt yeah, there. I wonder whether it's something that's lost in translation on the small screen. I think I really, I think it probably has a lot more in- impact on the big screen. Perhaps I know this is one I've not seen on the big screen. So, um, I, you know what? If the opportunity comes up, I'm going to take it to see it because, uh, I, I, yeah, I think you're probably right on that. Well, t- talking about the the like first sequence where you were saying that John Glenn had pulled together a really good clean pre-title sequence where it was really well made but there's no actual smart storyline behind it i think this is another example of that because the story behind this scene it's like they've 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 said we're going to do a really good rock climbing scene make it really impressive but the actual concept behind what he's doing and the team are doing is absolute nonsense because they're stood at the bottom that's a really big clip he's climbing up it would take him like two hours to get to the top of that thing and they're just sat watching him and the only reason he's going to the top of that is to take out the guy that he knows is up there so that they can go up the steps at the side. The first thing he does is put his head out over the top and start climbing up, knowing that there's a guy at the top. And that's the one reason he's going up and he kicks him back down again. Like if, if he was smart, he would have his gun ready there and then just go up and shoot him. It annoys me every time because it's like constant, you know, effects and um stunts above the fact that they could have just made it smarter with the story but they didn't seem to bother doing that always angers me with that one i agree with you but there's also a hark back to what we said right at the very beginning of this piece when you mentioned the guns of navarone because in the guns of navarone there is a a shipwreck at the bottom of this cliff cliff face and the whole team have to make their way up this massive rock face to get up to the level that they need to get to go to go get the guns and have our own. So I'm wondering whether or not there's another influence, you know, based on what we were talking about earlier on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wish he'd had a gun at the, st- at the top and just shot him when he came up. Not <laughs> looked up and went, right, here we go. So the previous film, Moonraker, which wasn't shot at the, the 007 stage in Pinewood, it was shot in France, and this is because of the high taxation in uh, the UK at the time. However, with new government in, they returned to Pinewood. And so November 1980, Peter Lamont started creating the sets at Pinewood. The identograph scene with Q, that's a Pinewood interior, and also uh, the interiors of the St. George's uh, sh- uh, ship were also built at Pinewood. There's not overly a lot of information about what what else was done at Pinewood we have the miniatures done so the first unit completed in Feb 1981 and then at Pinewood Derek Meddings was creating the miniatures so for St George which was then blown up Columbo's yacht elements of St Cyril's including the lift so the the basket lift that was created Uh, oh and an an underwater unit as well was created so they built a massive tank just so that they could practice with the supervision of Al Giddings. They could spend some time in the tank, and that meant that when they went to film the underwater scenes, which I believe you're going to talk about, Wheatley, they would be well Oh, in depth. They would be well prepared. But in terms of that, I mean, there seemed to be quite a lot of location filming on this. 
as we know from Bond films, there's a there's always a question mark over the 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 water scenes because as we know from Thunderball and McClory's obsession with doing underwater <laughs> scenes, underwater is slow and difficult to film in. And in Fury Eyes Only, they opted for quite a lot of underwater stuff that goes on and on the top of water stuff as well, as you can imagine by filming around uh, the coast of um, Corfu. Many of the the actual underwater scenes were filmed on a dry stage, as you mentioned, at Pinewood. And one of the reasons for that is that Carol, Carol Bouquet uh, apparently had a pre-existing health condition that pre- prevented her from doing anything in water, which seems like a strange thing to me when you're making a film where you want to do a load of water scenes. that's You'd probably check that before. That's that's kind of an annoying thing to have to deal with afterwards. But also, one of the other reasons is that they said that um, nobody looks good underwater. So, that's that's Roger, Roger talking, who, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, some, I, I, I read something where somebody said, Roger looks amazing, even underwater, but nobody does look good underwater. So we had to... I've seen him reviews to a kill and he does not look good underwater. Um, so, so, they, so to get around that and and so kind of from the learnings that they got from some of the early Bond films like Thunderball Underwater is that underwater scenes are very hard to film. They're very slow. So what they did was they did this stuff inside where they used lighting effects. Uh, they used slow motion photography. They used wind and bubbles and they added a load of bits and pieces in um, post-production to make it look like people were underwater, but they weren't actually underwater. It was done by a team led by Al Giddings, who'd worked on a film called The Deep. Have you seen The Deep? No, I've read it though. Stephen King? No, Peter Benchley. And yeah, so they they filmed um, a lot of it in Pinewood, but there was also an underwater set built in the Bahamas. They developed two working props for the submarine Neptune to do on in the in the studio. Uh, which is, of course, the the, the the big focus of them being underwater. Apparently, the the film that they were the the scene where they're being dragged underwater from Christastos's boat. They used four to five units shooting different material for that for that sequence above and below the water to get it all to fit together. So yeah, they, they, they just the process of it was sounds ridiculous. It sounds complete. They had an air machine blowing their hair like it with like. So it looked like they were underwater, but it was just wind blowing in in their faces, which seems like a laborious process to me. I, I need to rewatch it and just re- see how ridiculous it looks. From, from memory, it actually looks pretty good. It does look good. Uh, yeah. And then they changed, yeah. And then they shot it at seventy. Or I read somewhere somebody says seventy, but also somebody said one hundred and twenty frames per second, so that it looks like they're underwater. So yeah. And oh, the other thing they did as well is um, they're wearing masks underwater as well which means they could sync up the speech which you wouldn't be able to do if you had they weren't wearing masks which made it really really easy for them because it doesn't matter what they're saying you just stick a mask on and it's fine and also they used foreground glass fish tanks for the bubble effects so they're actually behind a fish tank so they are behind water but they're not actually in it so yeah a lot a hell of a lot of effort to do an underwater scene i think it's all right i don't really think it's worth the effort i'm not that bothered about it. it seems to go on for a while those underwater scenes yeah, there's a horrible extension to that whole scene, isn't there? I mean, they get the ATAC, then Mr. Blobby turns up. Sorry, the the, <laughs> the bloke in the gym yeah. diving suit. Um, but it's the way he falls around. I mean, that's why I said Mr. Blobby. It's the way he just goes, oh, oh, no. Like, you know, it's, um, <laughs> Roger's stuck under a filing cabinet. I mean, how much, how much, what else do they want to put in it? I mean, you know, they've got a, you've got an airline cut. You've got Roger's shoulder cut. He's underneath a filing cabinet. Mr. Blobby's fallen over. Melina's got her way to the back door. 
and and then yeah. suddenly you know the whole detonator goes off. It's just and then and then you've got the the chaser submarine, like you say. I mean, just oh, it's unnecessary. Isn't it's it? just you don't need it's any too of much. Just get the attack and get out. <laughs> <laughs> let's well, get on to the good stuff now. The bit that you've been waiting let, for. Let's get on to the. <laughs> Let's get on to the good stuff. Let's get on to the real script writing. Let's get on to the stuff which you were just you just made a comment there, which was about, you know, it's gotta be worth the effort. The Thatcher cameo, ladies and gentlemen. Here we are. It, it, we, we we bookend the film, like I said, with absurdity, and this is where we meet the Thatcher cameo. Now, I'm not gonna surprise you. I love a good impression. <laughs> um so I'm <laughs> I'm I'm actually all for this, and I'll, I'm gonna just hear me out, okay? Slate me in a moment, I, and I will ask I will ask for opinion in just a moment. But the, there is something about the end of this which it, it does it really does make it part of the time, and it dates it horribly. But there is something wonderful about how it's played out. I don't think there's anything wrong in the way that it's played out. It's not some half-assed impression. This is this is a wonderful little scene. Now. Well, we'll talk about all the other bits that go around it in a moment. But when you think about who's actually playing, so you got Janet Brown there, who's the uh, the the wife, or sorry, the 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 wife who was of the late Peter Butterworth, who died only uh, the year before she started filming this uh, this uh, cameo in in Fiora's Only. She'd been actually quite famous for this in the in the mid to late seventies, um, doing her Thatcher impressions, and in fact, a lot of her comedy was written by. Uh, John Wells, who also appears on on uh, screen with her as Dennis, so they already had this wonderful working relationship. I think there's a, there's some wonderful moments in there. A wonderful moment where John Wells sort of almost breaks the fourth wall by looking directly at the camera, and then obviously starts starting to steal things and getting his slapped wrist and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, I I, I can understand why people hate it, but from my personal point of view, I, I think the Thatcher cameo is. It, it, it's just, it's just nice. I just like it. I just like it, and I don't know what other else, other else thing to say. It's just that's, that's it. You that's know, all just, you need to say. Perfect. That's all you need to say, Stu. I just like it. <laughs> I just like it. Hey, I that's I valid. Like it. I think that's valid. Um, yeah, yeah. I say there's two, there's two strands of thought I think that go with this, this uh, sequence in the in the film. One is the eighties. Impressionism was big, getting big in the eighties. It was a big thing, and people cared about it a lot. And a lot of comedians were doing it. So, so you can see how they thought it was a good idea, and you can see how it would fit in. And all of the other Roger films finish with a sort of comedy thing at the end. It's, it's there's always sort of this bit of humour that sort of pops up, this British humour. But I think the problem with For Your Eyes Only is that they're trying to not do that the whole film and you can always see Rogers wants to try and be funny throughout the film and they keep saying to him no it's not comedy Roger try and tone <laughs> it down True. and True. it's got to the yeah. end of the film and they've just thrown this in and you can imagine Roger going oh what I didn't even get a part in this I was I wanted to be the comedy all the way through and I didn't get an opportunity to do it but if you stuck that in Moonraker nobody'd mention it nobody'd care it's just it just yeah. doesn't it's it's like they've tried so hard to stay away from this the whole film and then suddenly they've gone, oh, we can't hold it off any longer. Yeah, just sticking a comedy Margaret Thatcher sketch. That's fine. <laughs> it's like putting a trombone at the end, isn't it? <laughs> could do anything. You could have put anything in there. I mean, you, you could have had Roger Moore doing a, a dance or something. It wouldn't matter. Just put anything at the end. It's not a problem. People have got to the end of the film. They've seen it. Let's have some fun. I'm not sure. How it was, I'd love to know how it was received at the time. But maybe people loved it. But it just not aged well. 
So the final piece of the production puzzle uh, was uh, location shooting in Italy. And this happened in early 1981. Um, and they moved to a place called Cortina D'Ampezzo in the Dolomite uh, mountain range. And this is for the ski sequence. Uh, unfortunately, when they went, when they got there, they'd had the, the mildest uh, winter in decades. And so they actually had to truck in snow from towns nearby to, to put some snow on the ground. The location had actually played host to the 1956 Winter Olympics. And that's why you've got an Olympic ice rink and ski jump there. And they're both used in the film. Um, I, I always think that ski jump sequence is quite funny because it's just another another amazing skill that Bond happens to have along with... Uh, what is it? Hairdressing in uh, Die Another Day and uh, surfboarding, surfing. It's just he can just do anything, can't he? Ski jump mm-hmm. in the lot. But while they were shooting uh, in Italy, Roger actually injured his shoulder on the penultimate night of shooting. It was, um, I think, when they were on the ice ice rink, I think. He said it, it pushed the acro- acromioclavicular and separated the clavicle. It was exceedingly painful and all my language was horrendous. So he was taken to hospital, um, but rather than being hospitalised with the injury, which obviously would have made the shoot run over, he just had a local anaesthetic and then went to return filming the next day. Uh, what a trooper. So uh, unfortunately, there was a tragedy in Italy. And I think we talked about this when we talked about the Willie Bogner back in one of the episodes under B, um, because Remy Julian and Willie Bogner, they worked together that these were two of the stunt coordinators. They worked together to shoot this amazing motorbike ski bobsleigh chase, which I think is one of the all-time great skiing sequences in a in a Bond film. Um, and unfortunately, when they were shooting the bobsled sequence, one of the bobs actually overturned, and a, and a stuntman called Paolo Rigon was trapped underneath. And actually, he ended up being dragged to his death uh, on set. So um, yeah, a real tragedy that happened there. But talking about that, the bobsleigh stuff, that was um, something that came from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And something we haven't mentioned that is, is how this, a lot of people see this film as a spiritual sequel to that film. And there are a lot of um, connections. Obviously, you've got the Tracy stuff. I think the beach scene with Liesel is very reminiscent of the opening scene of Honor Majesty's Secret Service as well. Um, then you've obviously got this ski sequence here. Um, I think you can sort of almost see the two films and, and, and tonally as well as, as companion pieces. But um, but yeah, so that that basically wrapped up production, which takes us to the final segment, which is the release of the film, post-production and release. Before you do that, I went to that um, ski slope in Cortina two years ago. And I didn't realise it was in the Bond film. Oh, Wish I'd known what? at the time. I'd have taken more pictures. What a wasted opportunity. Yeah, fantastic location. Carry on. So the music. Uh, so this soundtrack, John Barry was unable to work in the UK for tax reasons. So this was a regular uh, occurrence during the seventies. A lot of people had left left Britain because to become tax exiles, and so John Barry recommended Bill Conti as a possible alternative. I got quite a nice. It's a long quote. But it's quite it's quite a good one. It, it extends on what you said earlier on, Wheatley. He said, I'd come off one of the Rocky movies where I had a disagreement with the powers that be about the music. It seemed like everyone knew the Rocky music better than I did. And when I was trying something new and different in later Rockies, everyone was saying, no, you've got to play the same music. You've got to do the same thing. Which, of course, is not much of a challenge for a composer. You know, didn't I do that once? So here's the strange thing and the lesson. I end up doing For Your Eyes Only, and here I am, sitting with John Glenn, the director, and Cubby Broccoli, 
during a spotting session. And they say, well, Cubby said it actually, apologetically, you know, Bill, this is the place where James goes into action. And so if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate you using his theme. And to me, it was like a natural because at that point, there had been at least 20 years of James Bond movies. And I thought, well, of course, I wouldn't think of using anything but James's theme. And it dawned on me only later that that's why they were doing what they were doing with the Rocky thing. When Rocky's running up the stairs, what are you going to do? Play another tune. So quite interesting that it, it you know, it took that for Opened him to his learn. eyes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just as iconic as well. I mean, they're the, probably the two most iconic themes for characters in film history. Yeah. Also on the soundtrack, but not, not released, is um, there's a, a, a brief homage to the Jaws theme in the underwater scene when, when they approach the sunken ship. So if you can dig that out and, and you can hear the, the, the few bars on that. And also the notes of the title song to The Spy Who Loved Me, Nobody Does yep. It Better, are heard on the key code uh, the as they enter the, in yeah. the, Q, the Q lab. Where Roger finishes Q's yes. entry because he doesn't remove the full code. Yep. Very good. He gets annoyed of him for it. Yep. Constantly annoyed of him in this film. <laughs> uh, so there you go. But it, it's really interesting about Conti because he, he learned uh, under two schools of thought when he was when he was getting into music. And one was uh, a guy who would question every single note he wrote and would say, well, why, why have you put that there? Why have you written that? And he'd have to analyze it. And there was another guy called uh, Vincent Persichetti who he, who Conti learned under, who just said, just make music. Go high, go low, go fast, go slow. Just make something. And you can hear that. I think the Fiori's only soundtrack, you can very much hear Conti leaning towards that school of thought that he was he was taught, which was just, you know, within whether it's 45 minutes, three minutes, one minute, whatever, just take it wherever it needs to go. And there's that quote in the um, Inside For Your Eyes Only documentary where Conti says, or it might be the Music of Bond documentary where um, Conti says, you know, the film goes left, the music goes left. And boy, does it go left in this film. It's, it's, you know, it's great. It's great. Okay, so on, on to the, uh, the actual title sequence. Morris Binder back again for yet another um, opening title sequence. Uh, it's, there's not a lot to this one, really, but there's one quite interesting thing in this sequence in the fact that it's the first Bond titles to feature the singer as part of the actual sequence. So Sheena Easton, she apparently, uh, Morris Binder went into, oh, wait, this is a quote from him actually, he says, I went into Cubby's office and I looked at these tapes and I said, my God, why did I shoot all these shots with these pretty models? I said, we could have used the singer, bring her out from behind. So I did. And I wasn't sure how it would work. She had never done a film before. So he, he got Sheena Easton into this one because he, he thought that she looked good like a, a model, so he didn't have to use models in it. And then she said about it, which is slightly strange quote, I heard that he had filmed lots of eyes and had decided to use the eyes, but then he had seen videos of me singing and thought my eyes were adequate. Then the day came and he shot my whole face. He built around that. But it's, it's, not, it's not a particularly exciting title sequence it's actually I, I think the fact that he's got Sheena Easton in it makes it a little bit boring because it's I think it lends itself to not really having much effort put into it she talks about it being like almost like it's a, a free music video for her that they made for her that she could just use that as a, as a, as a song as a, as a video for her song but there's definitely not a lot going on in this it's almost like Bond by numbers um, there's a little bit of you know he's, he's moving around the background shooting guns um, I don't think it's, it's it's definitely not one of the memorable 
title sequences. The song's quite good, though. I like the song. Just one little thing that Binder said about it. Um, he was talking a bit, a, a little bit about how it's quite annoying uh, that they changed the lyrics for these songs while he's trying to edit them. Quite noticeable in For Your Eyes Only. So they, apparently they kept changing the lyrics throughout the, the process, but he'd already edited the sequence. So every time he'd get these changed lyrics, it would completely change where the edit was. And at one point, there's a bit where uh, in the song it says, um, I see your eyes in a thousand dreams. And it's just a lady's bottom moving across the screen. So <laughs> it instantly had to go back and, 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 and change that. Yeah, it's an interesting lyric that that's that's from one of the um, the cut verses, and it, I think also like you were just alluding to there, how how much Bender took to um, Sheena Easton. I think you know the most unfortunate aspect of that is the, the the slow zoom into her eyes in the title sequence is actually her literally strapped to a chair because her head was moving so <laughs> much in close up. Bender actually had to slap. So, so yeah, so it's it, that's a little bit dark. Let's move on, uh, but we'll talk about the song itself, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> so the the song um, originally before Sheena even came on board, um, and even before Conti even got involved in this, um, you've got Blondie, who'd already written, they'd already written it. It was pretty much committed, and they'd done everything they needed to do. Quite happy with it, submitted it, and uh, the um, United Artists and uh, MGM at this point, as they started to amalgamate, that's an important point in this. Uh, point in the franchise as well is the fact that MGM and United Artists start to become one at this point. Um, so they have this this big to and froing in terms of whose decision is whose. So Blondie come on board. They've got their they've got their title track written. They then get told, uh, or Debbie Harry gets told at this point that actually you can do the song. You're more than welcome to, but Debbie Harry, you'll be working with our composer and our songwriter. And that wasn't agreeable. And Debbie Harry just said, "Look, no, that's no. It's it, the band as a total, not nothing. You know." So basically, they cut and run at that point. You can still hear their song uh, on their album. Uh, it's Hunt, uh, I believe it's Hunter. Is it the uh, the yeah. uh, Blondie album Hunter? You can hear it on that. You can also get it on YouTube as well. It's actually a really, really good track. Uh, but they weren't agreeable with the fact that they would be led by a composer and whatever other forces were around it, which is obviously something that you see come to the fore when it comes to Aha and, and Duran Duran a little bit later down the line. So what happens there we, then we have is that United Artists uh, recommend Sheena Easton. Conti's only heard her on an album. He's not that convinced. He says, no, I don't think she's got what it needs. He wanted um, somebody like Donna Summer. He wanted Dusty Springfield. He actually wanted Barbara Streisand to write the song, but she was tied up with Yentl at the time. So Bill Conti then sort of has to, to work with the studio to say, right, okay, I'll hear you out. Let me go and listen to Sheena. They get her into the studio. And actually, he's bowled over in terms of why, by her range. And he says, right, okay, yeah. Go on, then. I will, I will work with her on this. We'll see what we can do. Leading nicely into what you were saying, Tom, there around the title sequence is that Bill Conti then goes to meet Binder and he's got the song written in his pocket and he's sat there with Binder having lunch and he's, saying, and he's thinking, right, I've got this song. And, he's, and, uh, and Binder starts talking about what he wants to do and Binder starts saying, well, whatever happens, um, I want the title first and foremost. I like to put the title over the title as it's sung. I don't give a shit what you say afterwards. Just make sure the title's in the title. So, so the problem with Conti is he's got a he's got a song in his pocket which ends with "Your Eyes Only" and doesn't start with it. So he's like, "All oh, right, uh, okay, uh, yeah, whatever, whatever you want, Morris. Yeah, good stuff. I'll see you later." So he's, he's he was about to present his song, but it didn't happen because he had to go back to the drawing board. 
And what happens next is he actually, Conti, in a weird way, has to lean on Sheena because what Sheena then does is recommend her lyricist, Michael Leeson, who was working with her at the time. So this, is, this isn't the forces that gather around Sheena to make her do her song. She actually recommends the composer. So Leeson gets on board and does his lyric and, and we have what we have at, in, in, the, uh, in the end. I mean, Fiora's only, it, it, it's quite, it's a subdued ballad as such, but there's, there's some, I think there's a nice little motif in there that goes all the way through the film, which is that, and it's almost like you think about the bombast of Goldfinger, which is like that, but like Conti's just written it like really, he's gone for the romance. He's on, it's like a little bit, it's so subdued, but it is that kind of looking for that. And you hear it in the brass as well throughout the soundtrack is the fact that he, you know, weaves that sort of theme going through. So I think for everything that people say about the song, about the soundtrack, whatever, there, there is there is logic in there. There is a lot of thought going into Fiora's Eyes Only. And, and again, I'm an advocate, and that's a bit of history around the song itself. Well, it did really well in the, in, in Europe. Um, it did really well in Western Europe. No, Netherlands took it to number one. Norway took it to number one. Switzerland took it to number one. Uh, in the UK, it charted eight. And in the UK, it was uh, four and six on the billboard of Hot 100 and Adult Contemporary. The only place it didn't really chart very well was actually in Japan, uh, which is quite strange for a Bond film. You'd think they'd be all over it. Um, that was the lowest chart for Fiora's Only, and that was at 22. Right, on to uh, something we talked about right at the top of the show, which is about the poster for the film. So obviously you all know this this poster. It's the one with the legs, and that's the, that's the sort of the iconic look. It's got the legs got the crossbow um and that is uh was designed for the main poster campaign by an american poster artist called bill gold the image itself was inspired by the work of uh, erotic photographers such as helmet new helmet newton and um so gold talking about it said that we made a sketch and showed it to the producers and then we hired a leg model someone who only does legs and arms we had her pose with her bikini bottom on so i don't know if you know this about the uh, the, the, the the legs on the on the poster but the the bikini actually is being worn backwards so uh, bill gold said it wasn't provo- provocative enough he said so we asked her to put the bikini bottoms on backwards so that is the front of the bikini is now at the back so now you get more of the um the derriere shall we say so the that was for the main uh, US version. That's a that's a photo, but the UK version has a um, a, a painted version, which has been done by the uh, poster artist Brian Bysouth, who is just legendary. He does some amazing, incredible posters. Some Indiana, a lot of Indiana Jones ones, all sorts of different ones. But this is one of his most famous. And on that version, it's got the uh, the painted legs, but then also some action scenes around it as well. And, and talking about the poster design uh, by South said, Eric Pulford created the UK poster design that was approved. I think this was done at um, Ferref. It says the inclusion of the very iconic Bill Gold legs concept was a must in any design that was submitted. So I suppose the scope for fresh design was limited. So yeah, Brian, Brian then sort of worked around Eric's design and, and then made the montage just slightly different. So there became a bit of a, 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 a tabloid story around the poster as well, because after the poster came out and it became such an iconic um, design, there was a lot of questions about who owned the legs in the poster. And actually three models came forward to say it was their legs in the poster. 
uh, in the end, it was revealed by a, uh, a newspaper. Well, the, basically, the photographer came forward, a guy called Morgan Kane came forward, who'd taken the photos, and he revealed that it was a lady called Joyce Bartle, who was uh, from New York. She was 22 at the time when the photos were, were taken. Those were her legs. Uh, the arm was <laughs> belonged to another model called Jane Summer. And yeah, they were sort of composited together. Uh, but talking about her legs being used, jo- uh, Joyce Bartle said, I was embarrassed that I had to prove that the legs were mine. You know your, le- your own legs when you see them. And then one last thing to say about the poster, the amount of skin uh, obviously being shown on the poster is quite a provocative poster. But in some markets, some newspaper editors actually edited in shorts over the bottom. So it was a bit more um, uh, PG friendly uh, for their for their newspapers. But um, yeah, a real iconic poster um, for this one. One of the most memorable, I think. It is. It's wonderful. It's just that picture that you paint there where it's a bit like I'm Spartacus. And it's just like people just holding their legs up. These are my legs. These are my legs. (laughs) So on to the merchandise, and this one has got quite a few different tie-ins. You've got toy guns, Corgi models of the Citroen 2CV. Uh, Marvel actually published a comic book adaptation, wristwatches, digital watches, and, of course, all the, the magazine front covers, all film, TV magazines. But the one that stands out is a specially produced Citroen actual 2CV, which had decorative bullet holes stick like stickers on the actual car and if you have wow. a look at this on the internet nice. it's it's mad why you'd want to drive around this it's got like double 007 plastered on the sides and then all these bullet holes it's 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 a strange butler's just started story. looking for it <laughs> he'll, he'll have purchased it by the end of the episode i've put some bids in so on to what was happening when the film was finished the premiere this is a big premiere. Uh, there's a really good video on YouTube of the premiere itself. It's it's so early 80s. It's ridiculous. It looks awful. It looks like you see these premieres nowadays and you think, oh, it looks amazing. The you know, All these stars there, all the f- f- photographs. This looks like it's in some sort of working men's club. <laughs> it was quite a big deal. It was, um, it was an Odeon Leicester Square. So this was uh, so this was t- this took place at the Odeon Leicester Square on twenty uh, fourth of June, nineteen eighty one. There were lots of big stars there, um, but the biggest of them and the ones that made all of the news posts about it at the time, the, the, the across all the TV channels, were the Prince of Wales um, and of course Lady Diana, and also Princess Margaret was there as well. But these kind of like completely took over the the whole premiere thing because this is what all of the news coverage was about that they were at this this event because it was around the time where they were in the news quite a lot anyway um a lot of the a lot of the cast and the crew were there as well and Piers Brosnan of course went because he was there with Cassandra Harris who was his wife at the time but the big thing was that uh, Princess Diana and um, Prince of Wales were due to be married a month after the film premiere so there was a lot of publicity around it. So basically this whole, if you go on YouTube and find this premiere, it's just about them. It's like a whole thing, just following them around the room and who they're speaking to. One interesting thing that I found, which ties in with the merchandise, is that Roger presented the Prince of Wales with a solid gold version of the really crap 007 digital watch that he has in, in the film. And it, and it played the James Bond theme when you press the button. So I love thinking of Prince Charles walking around Buckingham Palace praying this James Bond theme on his watch all the time and the Queen telling him to turn it off. And apparently <laughs> Roger sat next to Lady Diana during the screening. So I imagine she had fun. 
but he had a few funny comments for her throughout. Oh, to uh, be fun. Yeah, it would be amazing. So it, there was a lot of charity stuff around it as well. So they had sold official programs to people that were there in aid of uh, the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, NSBCC, and the Royal Association for Disability and Rehabilitation. There were, there, interestingly, there was some concerns as well about the opening scene. So the Blofeld uh, or the question mark scene uh, with him in the wheelchair because they had invited a number of uh, guests that were um, associated with um, a radar charity that came to the event. So they were worried that they were, that people were going to be offended because you know the baddie at the start was in a wheelchair and they chucked him down a, a, a chimney. But no, they loved everyone loved it. There was no issues at all with it, and um, it got like a, a raucous laughter from everyone that was there. Another interesting fact: Topol he actually suggested to Cubby uh, during this film that he um, should invite Harry Saltzman because, of course, this was long after they'd had their sort of breakup. And this was the time where he's... And it was Topol who suggested that he comes along and they sort of rekindled their friendship to an extent. And he came along and Saltzman, it was the first time he, he, he sat with Cubby and they watched the Bond film together in a long time, which is quite a nice part of the story. So yeah, quite a big premiere and lots of stuff happening at that time. What did the critics think, Stu? Do you know what? They kind of sum up, I think, pretty much how our conversation's gone because they recognised where like, there is some brilliance in this film, certainly in terms of the stunt work and um, in terms of you know those, those kind of location set pieces and what have you, but they didn't think much was happening in between those. So let me go through a, a few of these. I'll only read a, a few just to... Keep your attention, but Derek Malcolm in The Guardian at the time, this is probably the the, uh, critique I have issue with. He says that Bond inhabits a fantasy land of more or less bloodless violence, groinless sex, and a naivety masked as superior sophistication. Now, I don't think there's much bloodless violence going in in Fury Eyes only. I actually think there's there's quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of drama and, and stark violence going on in this movie. You know, Luigi falling out of the car with his neck garroted. Um, you know, the, the blood coming off Bond, you know, as he's going over the coral and, and getting caught by the Mr. Blobby in the in the, uh, in the shit whilst he's trying to recover the ATAC. You know, there's... And, and Liesl. I mean, Liesl's crashed into a, the windscreen of a Jeep on the beach. I mean, there's not bloodless violence in this film, but fair enough, that's what he thought. Um, Ian Christie, writing in the Daily Express, said... Not much of a plot, but it has a touch of credibility, which is a welcome change from some of its predecessors. And that's probably a little bit of a leaning into, you know, where they're about to go in the 80s, where people are starting to see beyond the fantastical. Jack uh, Kroll, Newsweek, and these are all contemporary um, contemporary critiques. Roger Moore is the best oiled cog in this perpetual motion machine. French filmmaker Robert Bresson admired the film as it said it filled him with wonder because of the way that it had been cinematographically written. Uh, if he could have seen it twice in a row on the same day, then he would have done. God bless him. Uh, so those were some of the co- contemporary ones. Now, one from uh, 2008, and I'm going to end on this because I actually uh, I agree with this. So this is Dave Kerr and this is Chicago Reader. And it's it's a wonderful little skit. I like this. Roger Moore has crumpled his comic strip good looks into something approaching world weariness. But this newfound maturity in his expression is reflected in director John Glenn's style, which goes from the measured and elegant over the flashy and excessive. I quite like that. I think that sums it up quite nicely. I bet he didn't like Octopussy. (laughs) It all changed. 
<laughs> okay. So that then just leaves us with uh, the box office. Um, it was released on the 25th of June, 1981, and then again in the, uh, the US two days later. It grossed worldwide $195.3 million, um, was the second highest grossing Bond film after Moonraker. So it did pretty well. It was uh, it was a big hit, not quite matching up to, to, to Moonraker, but still pretty good. Uh, when it was shown to the public, uh, Leicester Square, it opened had an opening day record for any film at any cinema uh, in the UK with a total grace of nearly £15,000 from a single day. Um, and it stayed at uh, Odeon Leicester Square for 11 weeks after the premiere um, and then also continued to play um, uh, at the Odeon Marble Arch right up until the end of August. So uh, it had a good old run in, in, in London. Um, it did get a, a reissue later on as a double bill with Moonraker, um, and that um, yeah was in 1982. The video rights to the film um, uh, for the, all the James Bond films were acquired by Warner Home Video uh, in 1982, um, and so the they started releasing the films on VHS in 1982, and that meant that for your eyes only. Uh, was available to rent uh, on video by 1984. Pretty good at the box office. Did it pick up any awards, Brendan? Well, uh, the title song itself was nominated for Best Original Song at the Golden Globes and at the 1982 Academy Awards, but it lost out to Arthur's theme from the film Arthur in both of those. But at the same Academy Awards, uh, Cubby Broccoli was awarded with the Irving G. Talberg Memorial Award. Um, so not directly film the, the actual film, but it you know it's related to Bond. Um, and the Writers Guild of America nominated the script for best comedy adapted from another medium. That's interesting. Very bizarre. Well, that's, that's for the Margaret Thatcher scene, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's what it did at the awards. So I guess that that pretty much wraps it up. I mean, it, uh, as it stands now, I think uh, I think the general consensus is that uh, you know I think it's a mid tier Bond film, but it does definitely have its 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 fans, like as any Bond film does. I mean, as I always say, I think every Bond film is a miracle, and it has it has its own facets to enjoy. And um, I've got to say, after watching it again a few times recently, it's grown in my estimation. I think there is a lot to a lot to love there. So what do guys, what do you guys think? For me, it's uh, just complete indifference. And I also don't think Roger Moore should have been in this one. It's interesting that he got another crack. You see, Moonraker should have been Darling of the Day. You know, he shouldn't have got the next film. Or Diamonds Are Forever. You know, those films were made before. The same actor didn't get another chance to rectify. That would never have got View to a Kill, Brendan. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he's getting at. (laughs) But Stu, this is one of your favourites. Yeah, I think so, but probably more from uh, emotional aspects of, of having lived and breathed where it is. Um, I think, you know, from my point of view, I, I still think it's sad that it's it is quite forgettable in um, in people's hearts and minds. I think for all the care and attention it's it's got in it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of quality stuff in there. There, there. There's some fantastic stunt work. There's some great location stuff. Nothing's trying to mask anything. It's it's all very much up front. I mean, you could accuse it of being probably on a Majesty's civil service rather than secret service. You know, it's quite uh, bureaucratic <laughs> in some respects. Um, but, uh, you know, 
I just, I just, for me, it's 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 kind of a joy. It's one of those that is a real throw on and just sit back and and watch it. You know, uh, I know we've done some analysis today on this, but you know, it, it is a it is a throw on and, and just enjoy for me. So yeah, I'd, I'll always advocate it. Right. So to wrap things up, uh, the official James Bond A to Z ranking for uh, for your eyes only. Right. Do you want a recap of where the films are that we've covered so far? Yep. Yep. Do it quickly. Okay, so at number six is Casino Royale, 1967. Number five is Diamonds Are Forever. Number four is Die Another Day. Number three, A View to a Kill. Number two, Casino Royale, 2006. And number one at the moment is Doctor No. So where, uh, Mr. Wheatley, you go first. Where would you rank? The only place it can go for me is number three. Right. So above... it's not worse than View to a Kill. No, but it's not as good as Casino Royale. Brendan, do you concur? No, I don't. I uh, I would rather watch A View to a Kill and Die Another Day over this. Wow. Well, this is this is hot off the press what because a, I was not expecting what, that. What, what a bombshell. Um, yeah. Uh, the thing is, I feel more emotion towards A View to a Kill. I, I get ang- I'm angry about that, which means hatred is not a is not a reason to put a film above no, another no, film. But <laughs> hatred it, hatred hatred is more more interesting than indifference isn't it and for that reason I'm have, putting... have you seen sex in the city I'm you might putting... like that. <laughs> that's my favorite film because i hate it so much <laughs> yeah, i thought it might be yes. um so i'm putting it at number five wow wow okay wow. well i am gonna side with wheatley and i'm gonna say i think it's better than a view to a kill and die another day and diamonds are forever so i'm putting it at third so i think that means you're outvoted brendan we're gonna stick with it in third place just outvoting wheatley yeah, yeah, he's wrong. <laughs> he's just think, wrong. He, he can't, if, if a man's basing his principles on how much he hates a film being a reason to put it higher, <laughs> ignore him. <laughs> Fine. Sorry, Brendan. It's it's going in at number three. It's oh. crazy that in the, we've got a ranking where View to a Kill is the fourth best Bond film, but there we are. That's where it stands at the moment as yeah, it but works. For Your Eyes Only is the third best Bond film. So, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> It really is, uh, yeah, a topsy-turvy world that we're in. But we're getting closer. We're getting closer to some really good Bond films. We've got uh, From Russia With Love will be our next James Bond film special. So I really can't wait to do that. And then we've got Golden Eye. Golden Eye. Can't wait to do that. Now we're talking. Brendan's yeah. eyes are lighting up here <laughs> Yeah, for the listeners. But be- before we <laughs> do that... We'll- before we do that, we're going to have a guest on next week who is a filmmaker who has actually worked with Julian Glover um so he's going to tell us why he loves the 1980s bond films and also julian glover who plays christassos in this film so i'm hoping to get some really great insight from him um so please join us next week for that episode if people want to get hold of us though on uh, email how do they get hold of us podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk and if they want to get us on social at jamesbondatoz on facebook instagram and twitter so, yeah, just to wrap things up then, Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I thought you'd bring, to bring some amazing insight into this film, um, some much-needed balance, I think, as well. I, I really hope we can get you on again soon. It's been uh, it's been fun having you here. And um, if people want to follow you on Twitter, that's the best place to get you, right? Yep, that's at Salts007. Stu only likes so tweets. S- that's it, S-O-L-T-S. 007 follow Stu he's very funny he does some great impressions we might even splice some in uh, to this episode for you to enjoy 
as a little special bonus treat. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as always, James Bond will return in the James Bond A to Z next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Inglemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly.